Each year on July 7th, the streets of Pamplona in Spain explode with thousands of people parading the statue of the city's patron saint. Thanks to Hemingway, the week-long San Fermin Festival also attracts daredevils from all around the world. You jump in the middle of a street, you see a bull, and you run. That's the basic technique. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up, Francisco Gloria guides us through the annual running of the bulls. And in Alaska, there's a different kind of rush, as sled dog teams compete each winter in a thousand-mile endurance race. This year, my younger sister Jan followed through on her dream to complete the Iditarod. Jan shares with us what it was like to stand on a dog sled in sub-zero weather for two solid weeks. For me, I'm just in a different world out there. And if the thrills you prefer come in the pages of an absorbing novel, we'll unravel why Scandinavia's become a hot spot for crime fiction. It's the kind of society where people keep secrets. Adventures just ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. A personal guide through the crazy week of the running of the bulls in Pamplona, Spain, and the backstory on the craze in crime fiction coming out of Scandinavia. That's coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves. Let's start with an accomplished dog musher from this year's Iditarod race, who just happens to be my little sister, Jan Steves. She's joined by her friend Bob Klupak from Willow, Alaska. Bob's a veteran dog musher, and he helped Jan develop her skills to run in and finish the legendary Iditarod sled dog race across Alaska for the first time this year. Bob and Jan, thanks for joining us. It's nice to be here. It's great to be here. Jan, we grew up together, and I had no hint that you would be some famous dog musher. How did this idea start? Where did it come from? Well, I've always loved dogs, loved the outdoors and mountains and snow. And as you know, I was an avid skier. And so snow, sports, winter sports, dogs all together. And growing up with stories of dog sleds and sled dogs, I've always been fascinated with them. But it wasn't until 2007 that I decided I would love to uh, run Iditarod. And uh, at that point, I'd never even stepped foot on a sled. So five years, from 2007 to March of 2012, from the idea hatching until actually setting out and succeeding. The Iditarod, what is it? How many miles, how many days to do this race? It's about 1,000 miles across Alaska, and it's anywhere from 8 to 14 days. And you lived with the dogs in the wilderness. How long did it take you to do the race? 14 days. 14 days. What kind of training is involved? Well, you learn how to drive a sled, you learn how to take care of dogs, you learn how to develop a trust with your dogs, you know, you bond with them. So the best scenario is having the dogs that you've been working with for years be your Iditarod team. And I had a core of 12 dogs that I had for four years, and then I added extra dogs to fulfill my team. How many dogs on a team? 16. So you've got these dogs with you for 10 or 12, 14 days on this 1,000-mile race. Mm-hmm. How do you take care of the dogs? How do they eat, sleep, uh, rest? I would assume a great part of the success is how you keep your dog team doing well. Absolutely. Dog care is the utmost importance, and if you don't take care of your team, you will not get to know them. And so you have to feed them. You need to take care of their feet, and that's why we use booties. And And, and the booties are are to protect their feet? Mm -hmm. Yes. Because they're marching on ice. Yeah. Do you bring the water with you? No, we have a cooker, and uh, we have a cooler, And when we get to a checkpoint or anywhere on the trail where we need to feed the dogs, if there's no water available, then we melt snow. And then when we were in, I believe it was Nikolai, we had boiling water, which was fabulous. I could take my cook pot right on over, fill it with boiling water from a spigot, and carry it back over to my cooler and pour it over the frozen meat. So Nikolai is one of the stations along this 1,000-mile trail. Yeah, one of the checkpoints. Checkpoints. Yes. How would some checkpoints be more rustic and others be more luxurious? Well, uh, some of the checkpoints, you um, stayed in a school and you actually had mattresses to sleep on the floor. Other checkpoints, you had a tent out in the wilderness. What does it matter if dogs are uh, males or females? What kind of consideration is that? Well, I ran um, my 14 dogs. I had 12 males and two females. Um, When you're running a team of females or, you know, half of your dogs are females, you have to deal with them in heat for the most part. And that can be a major issue. I did not have that problem, but I had to deal with having a team of 14 dogs trying to pass teams with females in heat, and that was always fun. Um, so that actually is an issue? Oh, yeah, definitely. Bob, would you rather do the Iditarod with uh, male dogs or female dogs? It doesn't make any difference to me. Athletes are athletes, and they get along with me, and I get along with them. That's good. Dan, do you talk to your dogs? All the time. What do, you, do you talk in dog language, or do you talk in, in English? 
you know, I, I actually go up to each individual dog and chat with them. So and you have a relationship. After have, you haven't seen them for months when you come back to the lower 48 and you go back, do they um, remember you? Absolutely. Yeah. They, they remember me and they're excited and, and I, you know, go out there and talk with them. Is it tough to get the sleep you need during this race? Very much so. When you come into a checkpoint, you know, the first priority is the dogs. So you, if you have a six-hour stop, you're going to spend the first part taking care of the dogs, feeding them, taking care of their feet. And then you'll go through your drop bags, and you'll figure out what you need to resupply your sled with. So you've got an inventory of drop bags you have sent in advance to these stations all along the 1,000-mile trail. Wow. Including dog food. Oh, yes. What's dinner for the dogs? A cooler full of beef that's frozen that you pour your boiling water over, and then you'll add kibble to it. Then along the trail, we snack them, and we snack them with salmon, liver, tripe. You need to get about 10,000 calories a day in them. Do mushers talk about how they feed their dogs to Not, keep them energetic? It's a well-kept secret. Is that right? <laughs> you, gotta, I mean, you got your there, own secrets? Tell are, me a secret for your dogs. What, why are your dogs lucky to be fed by you? Um, because I love them. <laughs> you know, we just care about them greatly. I've known you for over 50 years, and one thing I can say is from the very earliest memory, you've been the biggest dog lover I've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a musher, not a whatever. A musher, 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 okay. Yeah, it's a musher. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with my sister, Jan Steves, who just completed her first Iditarod, and her friend, Bob Klupach, is a veteran of 11 Iditarod races over five decades. So, Bob, you've put a lot of your life into sled dog racing. What's the attraction? The main attraction for me is the passion for independent life. You're out there all by yourself with your dogs. The enjoyment for me comes when I can orchestrate my dog team into a unit that can move down the trail with a quick gait, and it resembles poetry in motion. You start out with an independent group of animals in the fall, and they are your best friends for 365 days of the year. You start out with uh, 16 to 20 dogs in training. They essentially walk, talk, bark, eat, sleep, drink together. And it's your job to meld them into a 14 to 16 dog dog team. To do that, you have to determine which dogs run the best with another partner and where they run the best in the dog team. Jan, Bob said that it's poetry in motion. What does that mean? It means you, when you watch those dogs, it's fluid. To me, it's kind of magical. I notice their gait, and I'll notice the dogs that are in step together. Do they Uh, actually get into a rhythm? They get in a rhythm, and they also, you know, for the most part, quite a few of them will actually be on the same foot. Really? And when you take a picture of your team from your sled, the coolest thing is when you see that they're all on the same foot. And Bob, when things are going wrong, what's, what's going wrong? Well, they're out of sync. The dogs are out of tune. When they're in cadence, it's like the beat of a song. And when they're not in cadence, when the music is just a little bit different, Perhaps there's a dog that's slightly sore or they need a rest or something like that. The dog driver has to determine that. And, Bob, what do you say to people at PETA who, who question the treatment of the dogs? Because anytime you talk about it, there's people that say, oh, they're abusing the dogs. All you have to do is just take a look at those dogs. That's what's genetically in these dogs. They've been doing this for hundreds and hundreds of years. The dogs are simply in love with this. I don't care how tired that driver is. You go down to the holding area after the finish of the race, you go down there, and what's that driver doing? He's laying down with those dogs, and he's petting them, and he's talking to them. He's feeding them the best feed on earth that you can feed. These drivers are emotionally attached to every one of those dogs. It's like your own kids. You treat those dogs almost better than your family. And if there's some skepticism in that regard, what kind of safeguards are built into a race like the Iditarod at the stations and so on? When the dogs are at a checkpoint, the first thing that comes around is the Iditarod vets. Hmm. They take the temperature of the dog, they check for the dehydration, they push the gums, they see how the blood flows back into the gums. Before we even get to these races, these dogs have gone through an EKG. High standards, in other words. The bar is being set really high. Jan, sleep deprivation. Mm -hmm. Tell me a sleep deprivation story from a a human's point of view on this. Okay, well, I was told at the rookie meeting that um, you will fall asleep and you will hallucinate. 
And I will tell you, I had never fallen asleep on a sled before, and I've never hallucinated. And I made the whole, I did a rod trail without hallucinating, but I fell asleep numerous times. As you were riding mm-hmm. on the sled? Standing up and sitting down. What's that like? <laughs> um, when you hit a snowdrift or the trail changes and the, your sled kind of jerks, you your eyes fly open and you're kind of in a panic, you know, looking around, trying to orient and figure out how long you were sleeping. So you can doze off and your dogs will keep running. Mm -hmm. And then if you're hitting the side of the trail, it'll wake you up. Mm -hmm. Exactly. At one point it was night and we had our headlamps on and I was sitting on my seat. And that's kind of almost dangerous because that's even more, you know, easier to fall asleep. And I tipped over and I woke up in the snow You know, I had fallen asleep. And then all of a sudden I see these dogs passing my team. And all I could think of was, you know, it was Bob. And how dare he pass me? Would you get six hours of sleep oh, a no. night? No, no, you might get an hour, hour and a half, two at the most, probably. Or oh my yeah. goodness! Now, what's the majesty of all of this? I mean, how can it be worth all the the cold and and? Yeah, I, I think you have to step on runners and experience having a team of dogs in front of you, and the relationship that you have with them, and they take you to places that, you know, you can't get to otherwise in the winter, and it's just breathtakingly beautiful. Um, for me, I am just in a different world out there. What's it like? Um, it's What's magical. It? You're hearing the, the sound of their feet on the snow. You can hear their the breath. It's very quiet. How cold did it get? Oh, we were down to minus 50. So you're, you're prancing along behind your dogs through the night a lot of the times. It's right. dark. Yeah. And it's minus 50 degrees. It's, it's not all fun. <laughs> okay. You've been on the trail for 14 days, 1,000 miles. Finally, you're going to finish this race successfully. What was that like? Tell me about the the last moments. It was a dream come true. You know, I was very tired, but I was just so happy to make it all the way. What time was it? 2.57 a.m. In the morning? In the morning. Whoa. And there were people still there to welcome us to Nome. I finished last place, and I received the Red Lantern Award, and it was quite the honor. So that's the trophy they give, like on the train, the Red Lantern. The Red Lantern, yes. And that, you know, symbolizes the end of the race. What I tell school kids across the U.S. is you can finish last and be a winner. Wow. And Bob Klupatch, you just finished your 11th Iditarod. What was your favorite moment on this trip? Watching the passionate smile of somebody finishing the race for the very first time. I got to watch Jan. I got to watch her smile when she crossed under those arches. And there's nothing like watching a smile when they cross under the arches for the first time. Jan Steves, congratulations. That is an inspiration. Thank you. Are you going to do it again? I'd love to. Why? (laughs) Well, it's hard to really give that an answer. I just have this drive. I would love to do it again. Bob Klupatch, Jan Steves. Thank you, and we'll stay tuned for your next uh, Iditarods. It's been great. Thank you for having us, and we'll keep you posted of what's up next. All right. Then when I get back to my home, hey, I can tell my tale. I did, I did, I did the Iditarod trail. By the way, I like your haircut. Thank you. (laughs) I did, I did, I did the Iditarod trail. It's travel with Rick Steves. Hike! By the way, we've got more online from Jan and Bob about their dog-mushing skills and running the Iditarod. Look in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com for the details and links that go with this week's show. There's an endurance race of an entirely different kind that captures the world's attention each July in the north of Spain. Hundreds of daredevils, dressed all in white and sporting a traditional red kerchief and fueled by adrenaline and sangria, 
are chased through the cobblestone streets of Pamplona by a pack of angry bulls on their way to a fight in the city's bullring. We're joined right now by Francisco Claria for an inside track on enjoying the San Fermin Festival in his hometown, Pamplona. Francisco, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Hello, Rick. Now, you've lived in Pamplona how long? I was going to tell you my age, but it's for a long while. <laughs> a long while. Okay. <laughs> All my life. <laughs> All your life. Do you enjoy the running of the bulls? Ah, it's great. It's fantastic. Pamplona is a very quiet city all around the year with a lot of history, the Camino de Santiago, beautiful buildings, an incredible cathedral. And suddenly, on July 6th at noon, as Hemingway said, everything changes and the city explodes. So the city changes from a village city to an international city. And it's fantastic. People come in from all over the world. Describe the actual experience of the running of the bulls, which is just a couple of minutes out of the day. But what happens? Well, that it takes place at 8 o'clock in the morning every day from July 7th to July 14th. So we have all of these crazy people running in front, wild animals. It's all around downtown in the city. There are some streets. And what happens is that we free six bulls that will be bullfighted that afternoon in the bullring of Pamplona. And you have to be, you try to be in front of the bull. It's very difficult to be in front because when we say in front, we really mean in front. To know that you're in front of a bull, you have to feel the breath of the bull on your pants. That's how close you have to be. Feel the breath of the bull on your pants? Yep. As he's just sitting there eating some grass? Well, he's not sitting, trust me. He's moving out. (laughs) He's moving and he has big, big horns. So (laughs) that's what you really have to feel. And you feel it. It's such an incredible adrenaline rush. So they get this... A lot of surfers, they say it's like when you are on top of the wave, it's perfect moment. That's what happens. So for maybe for, for six or seven seconds, you could have the breath of the bull on your leg? Uh, if you're lucky, you can go up to eight seconds. Eight seconds. So it's incredibly fast. So adrenaline. Imagine the adrenaline. It is an adrenaline rush. And it's terrible because it's like a drug addiction. Once you do it once, you have to do it again. So <laughs> now talk about who these guys are. What Mozos? The mozos. Mozos. The mozos and the mozas now, the boys and the girls who run in front of the bulls, are the people who know how to run. What happens is that we have one million people in the city and you don't have to sign in. Uh, You jump in the middle of a street, you see a bull and you run. That's the basic technique, (laughs) which is quite scary. But I've heard of like fraternity boys just getting drunk and going and running like a bunch of nuts. But you've actually got these mothos who are experts, famous. They do it every year. They they train. Yeah, we call them divinos. The divinos, which means divines, are the ones who really know how to run. They train all year round just for the running of the bulls. And they know how to get in front of the bull, run those eight seconds, and get out of the bull without, you know, disrupting the run of the other runner. So it's a very private moment, but you have to be good. You have to be a very powerful runner, but also you have to be a good person to run in front of a bull because you have to help other runners, and that's great. And about the drunk people, if you're drunk, you're not allowed to run in front of a bull. If you're happy, you know what I mean, you're allowed. But there's a thin line between happy and drunkness. So if you don't cross it, you're ready to run. A mozo, the, the, the real professional, get into his head for me for a minute if you can. I mean, the, the gun sounds and you know the bulls are coming. You haven't seen them yet. What happens? Time stops. You see a lot of people, but you don't listen anything. You get goosebumps. Your heart goes as fast as it can go. I mean... You can only hear your heart say, kong, 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 kong. And suddenly, that kong, kong comes, and you see that it's not your heart. It's the feet of the bull. And suddenly you say, if I'm not running, that bull is getting me. So you just explode and you start running. That is what a mozo has to do when they know how to run. And then you have a, a uniform. These guys wear white with a red kerchief. Well, these guys and absolutely everybody. When... Uh, American people come to Pamplona during the week of San Fermin, we tell them, you have to be all completely dressed in white. I was like, excuse me, I'm not going to be dressed in white. It is incredible, but you're going to see one million people all dressed in white with a red scarf, a red sash. Uh, The tradition tells us that this dress, it represents the death of a saint, which is San Fermin, the one that we celebrated. And uh, he died, beheaded, so the blood coming out of his neck, it's the kerchief that we wear. Oh, to remember the decapitation Mm -hmm. of the saint that you're celebrating, San Fermin. Before the run, I understand there's a song that the Muzos sing. What is that? 
Uh, Can you sing me just the first line or something? <laughs> well, would, first let me explain you what it is. You ask the saint, San Fermin, for protection. You ask San Fermin to protect you when you run and your colleagues. You ask San Fermin to also protect your colleagues. So it is a song that you sing three times right before the running of the bull. The first one goes very slow and it goes, well, the song is A San Fermin pedimos por ser nuestro patrón Nos guíe en el encierro dándonos su bendición. Viva San Fermín, Gora San Fermín, in Basque. A San Fermín pedimos means uh, to San Fermín we ask uh -huh. because he's our main patron. So he's the patron saint of, mm -hmm. of, of Pamplona, the state of Navarra. Of, of Navarra. We ask to guide us in the running of the bull, giving us his blessings. Okay, so That's, just bless us as we yeah. run like mad and try not Please to get killed by the bull. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, there's a sculpture of San Fermín in the, in the city, which is the one that we go and kiss, And he has a red capote, uh, the red matador's cape. And we say that this capote is the one that helps the runners. Because there are moments where it's incredible that nothing happens. Yeah. And this San Fermin miracle working there. I was at Pamplona for the running of the bulls. And part of it is just a big party, alcohol-fueled party. But actually the churches were filled. And people really care about San Fermin. Who is San Fermin and, and why does he matter to the people of Navarra? Well, okay, uh, San Fermin, we're talking a saint, was uh, from the 3rd century after Jesus Christ. And he was considered to be the first Roman that was baptized in the city. And the thing is that the general said that whoever was going to be the first person to be baptized would be beheaded, would be decapitated. And that was him. So that is why we celebrate him. The things that on television shows, uh, on the news, you only see running of the bulls and drunk people. But there's a big festivity around it, and it is a religious festivity. So, mm -hmm. And every day is a different day. One day is for young kids, another day is for babies, another day is for the grandparents. So all the kids go, all the babies go, the grandparents go on their day to see San Fermin. And we celebrate it with big heads and giants, and you run in front of the giants, and all the kids, it's fun, and it's incredible. You know, I'm normally not that into going to the big, crazy, raucous, chaotic festivals in Europe, but I was there for three days, thoroughly enjoyed it, and I thought Pamplona did a great job of organizing it all. As you mentioned, there's parades for children, there's all sorts of beautiful religious processions, the bars and the restaurants are just so full and energetic, and every morning at 8 o'clock, you got the running of the bulls. The whole city has this rhythm down where, you know, at night everybody's out, there's broken glass and people passed out in the corners. And then in the morning it's all cleaned up. And then in the day it's sort of family friendly. And it seems they've got it figured out. It's incredible. Really, our city hall, they work hard, many months ahead. <laughs> and Well, now they know how to do it. So you have to think that we welcome so many people that the city turns around. All the cleaning crews, all the doctors, uh, all the police officers, everybody is working and everything works pretty well. It's not a party just for night. So if you want it tonight, you're going to get it. But also if you go during the day, you're going to enjoy it. And it's going to be clean in a small city where you welcome one million people. It's going to be clean and you're going to have parades and music and everything. There's over 400 free activities during that week in Pamplona. So if a tourist wants to go there, it's once a year. It's every year from July 6 to 14. Every morning at 8 o'clock, there's a running of the bulls. Really, the only thing you need is a hotel. Well, uh, you're going to need a hotel room. I don't recommend you to go from July 6 to July 8 because it's going to be packed and you're going to pay an incredible amount okay. of money. But if you go from July 9th all the way to 14th, it's going to be cheaper. Don't go on the weekend. It'll be more crowded. And if you want another tip, go to San Sebastian. Wake up early in the morning and come to Pamplona. It's only an hour drive. Now, that's a great idea. I love San Sebastian, and then you don't need to worry about the exorbitant cost of a hotel. Uh, I, was, <laughs> I was impressed by thinking, 8 o'clock, that's awfully early in the morning. But for half of the people watching the bull, it's not early in the morning, it's late at night. <laughs> for most of the people, it's very late at night. <laughs> <laughs> But after you do the run, how long does the run take? It takes two minutes. But then I loved the, the tradition. You go to a, a little party upstairs and, yes. and watch, it on, watch it on TV. Yes. Uh, the whole to... run. You, when you were looking, you just see it flip by in 10 seconds. Uh, okay. If you don't run with the bulls, that I don't recommend you doing it, yeah. uh, you have to rent a balcony. Go rent a balcony, watch it from up in a window. And yeah. it's not too expensive. It's going to be 75 euros per person, a good balcony. You can get cheaper, but, you know, you're going to be one day in Pamplona. It's yeah. 75. Go there. And you're going to enjoy, because it's going to be a private house, you're going to be with whoever is in the house, 
and you're going to have some breakfast there. And you're going to see after the running of the bulls. The running of the bull takes two minutes. But what you're going to see from your window is going to be 10 seconds. It goes very fast. And after that, you have to watch it on TV and it's great. I've been with people from everywhere in the world in balconies many years. And not even one has said that it's not worth it. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We are enjoying the running of the bulls in Pamplona with the help of Francisco Claria. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Andrea's on the line in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Andrea, thanks for your call. Hi, thanks for having me. I thought it was interesting. I actually um, saw the running of the bulls in 03. Didn't run. I just watched it from, from the fence along the side of the route. And, you know, the, the, basically the bulls are running down to the bullpen, and then every night they have the bullfight. And I thought it was fascinating because I thought the whole experience was simultaneously thrilling, but then also I, I sort of had a conflict because of the nature of the bullfight. And I was just interested in Spanish culture, I know that parts of Spain have outlawed bullfighting, and I, I was just interested in hearing a discussion on that topic. Very good point. So just to set the stage, of course, this is a ritual where you take the bulls from the pen, they run through the city to the arena, and that evening, part of the festivities is uh, a very popular bullfight, and all of the bulls are killed. Francisco. Okay. Uh, hello, Andrea. The tradition of bullfighting, it's incredible. Well, if you go to the bullfight... Uh, Instead of just going there, try to understand what's going there. The bullfight is not just killing an animal, okay? Yes, you're right. The bull dies at the end. But it's more a romantic relationship between the bullfighter and the bull. When the bull comes in the arena, the bullfighter welcomes him. And the bullfighter, his job is not to kill the animal. The job of the bullfighter is to try to get the bull alive out of the plaza. And he's the only one who can do it, okay? So the bullfighter is not the bad guy. There is a judge up there. You probably don't see it if you're new. And he's the one telling what to do. And the bullfighter has to show off the good points of the bull. You have to think that for Spain, a bull is the more powerful animal. It's incredible how we worship bulls. You're celebrating the importance of the bull, but it's a ritualistic killing of the bull, ultimately. Yeah. There's no getting around that. It's just interesting to me that Bullfighting is covered in the culture pages rather than the sports pages in Spanish newspapers. And, you know, I, I wouldn't have missed one going to Spain. I knew how important it was to the Spanish culture. And I, I guess like any culture, um, as things change and modernize, I'm just curious as to how divisive mm -hmm. that issue is in Spanish culture in modern time. Well, uh, for example, in Catalonia, they have bound it. They don't have any more bullfights. So around Barcelona, that whole area, yeah. no more bullfights are allowed. No more bullfights are allowed since 2011. And the rest of Spain, I think, we're going to still have bullfights, especially in Pamplona. In Pamplona, If you take bullfights out of Pamplona, Pamplona wouldn't be <laughs> Pamplona. <laughs> you know, it's, it is an interesting issue, and I can understand how people would be concerned about it. It does have very deep roots in, in the Spanish culture. Well, all the Mediterranean, the Greeks, the Romans, always they have portrayed the bull as the power, as the king. Through history in Spain, we've always portrayed the bull as the powerful, the most powerful animal. And I, I think that's one of the things that fascinated Hemingway. I mean, Hemingway wrote, he loves the, the spectacle because it's two wild animals running together, one with two legs and the other on four. Ernest Hemingway, it is for us in the city, he's the hero. He put us in the map. He came to Pamplona in 1923 for the first time. And uh, he fell in love right away with all the bullfighting thing and especially the running of the bulls. And he wrote the book, The Son of Sorises, that takes place in the running of the bulls of that year. And that explosion, that two an wild animals running in front of each other, that is what, when you see the running of the bulls, that's what you feel, that's what you see, that's what you... It's hard experience. to explain. I agree. I, watching it several times, it was two animals, one human and one on four legs yes. running together. Andrea, thanks for your call. Thank you very much. Francisco, if a tourist wants to run, what equipment do they need? What do they do if they fall? When are the bulls the most dangerous? <laughs> okay, if you're going to run in front of the bulls, first, don't do it. But <laughs> if you're going to do it, might as well be prepared for it. So first, sleep well. Go to bed the night before very early. If you finally get to sleep, do it very deeply. 
The next morning, warm up a little bit. Don't go, you know, be prepared. This is sport and you're going to be from zero to 100 in nothing. And always remember one thing. When the bulls pass by you, you have to count. You have to count six bulls, okay? Because no matter what happens, all of the bulls have to go by you. So count up to six. There's always six bulls. But don't be fooled because there are bulls and steers. We have eight steers. So you need to look if it's a bull or if it's a steer. So there's 14 animals tromping down there. You better be careful. And if, <laughs> if you fall, what's the best thing to do? Lay down. Okay, it's like earthquake, duck and cover. It's better to be run over by six bulls than being horned by one. So be there, stay there, pray very fast. I don't care to whom you pray, but pray. And somebody will tell you stand up. When all the trouble is gone, just stand up. But don't stand up by yourself. Let somebody help you. Wow. Do people get hurt? Well, they do. Statistics tells us that we have one dead person by horn every 10 years. We have uh, three people horned every year, but not dead. And we have about 60 accidents a day. 60 accidents are, you know, me hitting you or oh, you just, twisting your arm. or Just on, on the streets? Yeah. Apart from the running? No, no, in the streets. In the, in the running. In, in the, the running. running. Ah, the okay. Running. So there's 60 injuries, yeah. a couple of gorings, and every 10 years a death. How many people have died over the years, do you know? 25. 25. As we have recorded. I would imagine there's more injuries in the bars and on the streets before and after that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the night is very long. And then when the festival's all over, what happens? Well, suddenly the city's empty, and it's time to catch up and try to make a livable city again. We but, have to. But the festivities at midnight on July 14. Oh well, that is the pobre de mí. That is the saddest moment when we all cry. We go to the city hall, and in front of the city hall, we all wear a candle and we sing a very, very sad song that says, "Pobre de mí, pobre de mí, que ya se han acabado las fiestas de San Fermín," which means. Poor little me, more or less, now that the festivity of San Fermín is over. So it's, it's a pity. But Poor us. The festival is over until next year. Until next year. And right after you sing that song, you're all happy because, hey, it's only 365 days to go. Till and the next running of the bulls yep. in Pamplona. Francisco Glaria, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. Next, we enter a society where the fiery spirit of Spain gives way to a well-ordered, serene, almost utopian setting. But something's stewing under the surface. Guides to Scandinavia clue us in on the recent craze in graphic crime fiction that authors from the region are producing, and how a spine-tingling story can drive us deeper into the human psyche. That's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Until the horrific attacks in July 2011 in Oslo and on that Norwegian island filled with young campers, the world tended to think of the Scandinavian countries as perfectly peaceful, well-ordered societies, where the gloom of a long winter might be the hardest part of living there. But every country has its challenges, and in Sweden and Norway, local authors have been bringing attention to social issues through their fiction, and people are paying attention. Stieg Larsson's bestseller, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, is a big hit in Europe and North America. And it's helped to propel a genre of Scandinavian crime fiction that's found an audience worldwide. Joining us to explore this trend are two guides to the region. Lisa Rybloom specializes in guiding American visitors through Norway, and Ilva de Silva is a tour guide based in Sweden. Lisa and Ilva, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Rick. Now, Ilva, you Swedes are, by most measures, the most content people on earth. This is the land of the most compassionate and socialistic of all the capitalist governments and so on. Yet you're also the land of brutal crime fiction. What's going on? 
I would say that it's an easy way to make money for writers because crime fiction sell. That's the easy. So that's the bottom line. Swedish writers know how to write a popular novel. Actually, we have a couple. They are married to each other, a man and a woman. And they write. They are writers. No one bought their books. They are serious, uh, well, traditional writers. And then they decided that they wanted to earn some money as well as Stig Larsson and Henning Mankel and all the others. So they wrote a book together, a crime fiction, and they now are living in a big flat on Strandvägen, the fanciest block in Stockholm. And um, I understand Stieg Larsson last year was the second best-selling author in the entire world. Yes. It's quite amazing. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And it's sort of juxtaposed with this idyllic society. I mean, blood in the gutter of Baghdad is terrible, but a bloodstain on a pristine snowbank in the Swedish countryside, that's really creepy. Lisa, what's, what's your take on this? Well, I think that One thing that makes the books compelling is exactly that, the setting. It's a land that is covered in darkness for a large chunk of the year. Um, It's cold. It's the kind of society where people keep secrets, maybe aren't as um, open. It's the kind of place where people watch each other. On the surface, everybody's happy and content. That's true. They're uh, maybe somewhat reserved on the outside. And so it's a good atmosphere for crime fiction, I think. Sweden does have relatively high suicide rates. Does that relate to any sort of deep-down problem in Swedish society that might be showing itself psychologically, Ilva? Well, we actually do not. That's a myth. Oh, really? Break. Okay. Yes. May I kill sure. that? Sure. Kill that myth. Yeah. Okay, so Sweden does not have a... No, but we are very good on statistics, and we are not Catholics. So um, it's not like in other countries where it's really a sort of a shame if a relative commits suicide. So I mean, if somebody... in, in many Catholic countries mainly, if um, your child commits suicide, you say it was an accident or he was sick. Mm-hmm. But in Sweden, if it is a suicide, it's registered as a suicide. Right. So actually, the suicide rate is the same all around the world. Okay, so it yes. depends on how people are reporting on it and how they're defining yeah. it, maybe. Yeah. Okay, so that's good to put that to rest. What about the notion that Scandinavian general, Sweden in specific, is much safer? The, the statistic I read, in the United States, there are 56 murders per million people. In Sweden, there are only 10 murders per million people. So you're five or six times less likely to, to be murdered in Sweden. Yes, definitely, and killed oh. in traffic accidents. And uh, So Sweden's a very safe place. Maybe that's, very... maybe that's why a crime thriller is such a titillating thing. I, I think that's exactly right. One of the statistics I've seen is that the worldwide murder rate is 7 per 100,000 people annually. In the United States, that number is more like 5 per 100,000, and the Scandinavian countries are all right about 1 per 100,000. So this is a way for them to explore something that isn't very familiar, or or maybe to say, this does exist. It doesn't exist as much as it does in this book, but isn't that interesting to look at things that um, don't happen all the time? And dream up really fancy murders mm-hmm. and all sorts of mm-hmm. uh, incredible mm-hmm. schemes. I mean, that's what uh, a lot of literature is. It's fantasy. So maybe you're uh, looking at uh, your society in a slightly different way and imagining the dark underbelly that you don't see as a regular part of life. For Stig Larsson, it was definitely, he wanted to make eye-openers for us Swedes. He didn't write these three books for you. He wrote them for us. So Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is written primarily for his Swedish audience. Definitely. He was a journalist and he was a, a man with his heart on the left side and he wanted to sort of show what is wrong in the Swedish society now. It's a trilogy. Yes. Uh, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. There's three novels, all by Stieg Larsson, mm-hmm. and they all have this cyberpunk sort of sleuth, uh, Lisbeth Salander. Yes. That's a, How would you she, describe her? Um, well, <laughs> I would say that she's a grown-up Pippi Longstockings. A grown-up Pippi Longstockings. Yes. She's not very well functioning in the society. She don't have a father nor a mother. She's very lonely. She's disturbed. She has um, some... Uh, now, that's um, interesting. Pippi has a very big sack of money that she has, and mm-hmm. Lisbeth also manages to create a very large fortune for herself through the course of the stories. She rides a motorcycle where Pippi rode a horse. She's extremely strong, strong she's tiny. That's right. Tiny strong and for her th- tiny mm-hmm. might. Remind us, Pippi Lonstocking, who wrote that 
Give us some background. Astrid Lindgren is the author. And that's uh, a big deal in Sweden. Mm -hmm, Very much a beloved author. So Pippi Longstocking grows up, pierces her nose and gets a few tattoos and gets involved in all these incredible crimes. Ilva, you lead tours, actually, around Stockholm based on the trilogy by Stieg Larsson. Tell us about those. Um, They are arranged by the City Museum of Stockholm because it it has to do with copyright and um, how Stieg Larsson's father and brother want these tours to be made, and it's all about money, actually, in the end of it. But So we are some few authorized Stieg Larsson guides, and we start uh, at Bellmansgatan 1, that is where... Mikael Blomqvist lives. And then we walk, we pass a lot of important places on one of the Stockholm Islands. And that is the island where all the good guys live, mm-hmm. Södermalm. It's the old working class area. Södermalm. Yes. So all the bad guys, they live in the former upper class area, Östermalm. Östermalm. Mm-hmm. So Södermalm is the south district, Östermalm is the east district. Yes. Working class, aristocratic class. Definitely. Okay. So... Mikkel Blomqvist, this um, journalist, he's living there, of course, as well as uh, this grown-up Pippi Longstockings, Lisbeth Salander. So we pass her former home at Lundagatan, and then we continue. We pass the office of Millennium, and then we end the tour where she bought a really fancy flat when she got that big bag of golden coins Lisa told you about. These it's are all fictitious, really, all based on the characters in, in the Stieg Larsson. It is, novel. but we do actually mix in a little bit of Stockholm history. Now, who takes these tours? Is it mostly Swedes? No, mostly foreigners. And among really. the foreigners, you can judge who is really fascinated by Swedish crime fiction by who takes your tour, perhaps. Yes, a How would you analyze of, that? Who takes uh, the tour? I wouldn't say that it's specifically one not nationality, one. But, but not only people Americans. from the whole, no. From no. the whole world. So this is a global phenomenon. It is, it is, and it has been translated to, poof, I don't know how And maybe many that's why Stieg Larsson is selling so many books. They're selling all over the planet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, this is part of a larger trend. I understand at Harvard there's even a course right now for undergraduates called Scandinavia 65, Crime, Power, and Politics in Contemporary Scandinavian Culture. Mm-hmm. There's also an academic at the University of Washington who's written a, a book on it recently and another small college in the Midwest that's offering a class on the subject. Our guests on Travel with Rick Steves right now are Lisa Rybloom and Ilva de Silva. They're guides to Norway and Sweden, and they're helping us to better understand how Scandinavians are addressing social issues in their fiction, and how the best-selling crime stories written by Stieg Larsson have helped to foster a whole genre of crime fiction from local authors. Ilva, tell us just a little bit about Stieg Larsson. What happened to him, and has he had a lasting impact on Sweden? Mm, he, he was a journalist, so he wrote his whole life without making any money. And um, he was a member of the Communist Party in Umeå, the city up in the north of Sweden. And he was always fighting uh, against racism, and neo-Nazi party fractions and things like that. And that was what he wrote about in a news a magazine he had called Expo. But then um, he decided that he also wanted to make some own, money. Make some money. So he wrote the crime thriller. So he wrote three really thick books about Lisbeth Salander and Mikkel Blomqvist. And he went to the publisher. And they were, of course, very happy when they got three books. And he said, I can write seven more about them. So it was supposed to be, or it was meant to be, ten books. And then he suddenly died. He got a massive heart attack one day at the office, mm-hmm. smoking too much. Nothing mysterious about it? No, nothing. Nothing, no mystery, no No. intrigue, no crime thriller. The only thing was that the lift was broken that day and the office Ah, is on the seventh floor. So he had to climb all the stairs and with that... I actually think a lot of people thought Stieg Larsson's death was a crime, <laughs> could have fit into a crime novel, and it, and it actually... Only Americans. Many Americans ask me on tour what the story is behind his death as if it were a crime, but it, it very much wasn't. Well, of course not. So, but uh, the, our mindset is that he couldn't possibly have uh, died a natural death. So, Lisa, your family's Norwegian. You've lived in Norway. Of course, we're talking about a Swedish um, author, Stieg mm-hmm. Larsson. Mm-hmm. Is this a phenomenon that is unique to Sweden, or is it kind of spreading all over Scandinavia? Well, I have another favorite author who is Norwegian, Joe Nespo, and uh, his books are all set in Oslo. 
They're also doing um, Joe Nespo's Oslo tours, much like the Millennium Tours in Sweden. I also happen to know um, some people who've recently bought a small bed and breakfast in a small town where uh, some of the action takes place in these books. So they've relocated to take advantage of uh, some of the touristic possibilities based on the books. So are authors in Scandinavia, because of their idyllic, peaceful, but still quirky and a little bit secretive environment, are they better equipped to write a great thriller, great crime thriller? Hmm. What do you think, Lisa? I don't know about if they're better equipped. Uh, One thing I've noticed about both uh, Larson's novels and Joan Espos is that they tend to um, critique their society through this popular form of fiction. They are often featuring characters who are on the fringes of what you might think of as Scandinavian society. I can think of two real-life tragedies in Scandinavia in the last generation. The assassination of Olaf Palma the charismatic prime minister of Sweden, and the horrific murder in Norway recently of all the children of a lot of political leaders. Can you draw any conclusions in in real life today? What's going on in Scandinavia that way? How did Norway respond to the recent killings? How did Sweden respond to the assassination of Palma? Well, the assassination of Palma is still a mystery. We don't know why or actually who did it. So. Right. Did that change Sweden? Because that Definitely. was a time when the prime minister could walk down the street with no guard at all. Yes, and, and that was what it is. see Olaf Palma, there's the prime minister mm-hmm. sitting next to you in a theater. Yes, so that has changed, unfortunately. Right. Uh, we still see our prime minister out walking, but with um, bodyguards. With bodyguards. That's a big change it's, and an unfortunate um, thing. In Sad. Norway, what happened after the the terrible assassination there well, in Norway? It's really caused a great deal of self-reflection about who they are. Um, I think it was a real shock to realize that this terrorist attack came from within their society. The person who was responsible for it is a is a Norwegian man with a strong nationalistic and racist sentiments. And they're really uh, looking at themselves and trying to understand how could that come about from a society that values equality. Because Scandinavia works so hard to be inclusive and works yes. so hard to be a, a comfortable place for immigrants to assimilate. That's right. Yet there are elements in the society that are threatened by that and fearful of That's immigration, right. and especially in a society that is so open and unguarded. And there's been a renewed commitment to that um aspect of society. And that's what's inspiring to me. Both uh, after Palma and after uh, the Norwegian tragedy, the society sort of did their very best not to become guarded and behind bars and, and with everybody locked up, that's right. but to still be open and to still be free, even if once in a while that has uh, some that's tragic right. I mean, it may, it may be slightly naive, but I was amazed that even the day after the attack, the security measures around uh, the cities were not measurably different. Um, the trains kept running Everything seemed to function as normal. Of course, it was a terrible tragedy, but I didn't feel locked down mm-hmm. even just weeks after. And in other societies, you may have been actually locked down after True. some tragedy like that. It's Travel with Rick Steves, and our guides into the world of Scandinavian crime fiction are Ilva de Silva from Sweden and Lisa Rybloom, an American who specializes in guiding visitors to Norway. Ilva, you... You spend a lot of time and make part of your living taking people on these Stieg Larsen walks. As you walk on your tour with your tourists through Stockholm and you point out different, you know, places relating to the girl with the dragon tattoo, what can we learn from that today about Swedish society? What gives you a sense that you're actually sharing some meaningful information with these travelers? Maybe since I said earlier that we pass the apartments of Mikkel Blomqvist and Lisbeth Salander. And they are sort of still alive. So they are alive. The characters that inspired those people? They represent parts of of Sweden? Yes, and we do actually show his flat. We point at the windows and we say, up there he lives. But this is a fictional person that represents a part of Swedish society. Mm -hmm. And they are still alive in a way. Lisa, how is this whole (laughs) phenomenon of Scandinavian crime fiction just changed uh, how we look at Scandinavia. I think it cracks open that idea that it's always perfect and idyllic, um, that everything is perfect and everyone is taking care of it. It it makes us realize that even their society has criminals, it has shady characters, it has people who want to profit off the misery of other people. 
the stories are really just a lot of fun too. They just are a lot of fun. They're fun. They're and fun to. Have read. you seen the movie? Uh, I've seen all three of the Swedish films, ah. but I haven't seen the American film. And as yet. an aficionado of this, what did you think of the movies? Well, I love them because I love to see the locations yeah. in Scandinavia, in Sweden. I like to see my Scandinavian relatives kind of impersonated in this yeah, uh, in this yeah, guarded yeah. but open yeah. but intriguing society. Yeah. Ilva, have you seen the movie? Yes, all of the Swedish. All the Swedish course, movies. But also the Hollywood version, and it was excellent. How was really? the Hollywood version compared to the Swedish version for you as a as, Swede? As good. As, as good. good. That's very as nice. good. Yeah. And Daniel Craig is a lot better looking than Mikael Nyqvist. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So better. So you like the the casting really well in the Hollywood. Yes, and it was also filmed in Sweden, in Stockholm, Uppsala. Do you know, can I just say one thing that you said about um, Stieg Larsson and, and the work he did in, in his own life with the magazine mm-hmm. on the neo-Nazis. It's interesting to me that what shows up in the fiction is still a very much a crusading attitude toward changing those aspects of Swedish society because he writes about problems that he sees in society and suddenly those problems are highlighted and they can reach more people than his magazine work. Yes, and that is actually what I said when I said that he wrote them for us as ah. eye-openers. Mm-hmm. So he wrote them with, a, with an agenda. Definitely. Mm-hmm. What was his Definitely. agenda then? To make us see these problems with um, these neo-Nazi parties, with um, because drugs the victims... also, because there is in the second book, I think, the plot is about a motor bicycle gang and they deal with drugs and prostitutes. I think they're really using their fiction, their popular fiction, to shine lights on serious issues, uh, problems that they that they are dealing with. I mean, the racism and human trafficking and drugs problems that do exist, even though we, we might think they don't because we're the social safety net is so good. Okay, so basically reminding Scandinavians... Everybody may think we live in a utopia, but we do not. Mm-hmm. Or maybe showing the world. Lisa Rybloom, Ilva da Silva, thanks so much. My pleasure. Tusen tack. Tack så mycket. Varsågod. Tack så mycket. Tack så mycket. Varsågod. Watch your back. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. You'll find links to our guests in the radio section of our website, ricksteves.com. That's also where you can post your comments and travel reports and listen to archives of the show at your leisure. Rick also has audio tours and maps for major sites in Europe that you can download to your smartphone. Click on the radio tab at ricksteves.com to access them. We'll see you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to Scandinavia, the Baltics, and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next Nordic adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.